0: Corinthians chapter 1. We just started uh, the book last uh, Sunday morning, and so uh, we we'll to carry you right on through. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-31. through 31. And as we <clears throat> started off last week, Paul had written these letters to a seriously troubled church. And now he's going to speak about the first problem in this seriously troubled church. Uh, It's something that dishonored the Lord and it hurt the believers at Corinth. And that was the divisive spirit of the people. Their divisive spirit grieved the Lord and it not only hindered the peace and love that they shared between themselves, but it also blew their testimony. You know, that they owed to the Lord in front of the world. So let's begin with verse 10 in chapter 1. And Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now make a note of this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned 11 times in the first 10 verses. And Paul makes it very clear who it is that all preachers and teachers should call people's attention to. God's message is way more important than any messenger. That's the important thing is God's word. The message that God has for us. The letter emphasizes the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we hear a lot about his lordship, but we don't see a lot of it today in people's lives. And that's why the church and individual Christians have serious problems. Jesus said it very clearly in Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? What Jesus was saying is, do what I tell you, or stop calling me Lord. You see, it's not, it's not enough to talk about Jesus being Lord. But is he your Lord? Have you made him your Lord and your master? Paul says here in verse 10, I plead with you. Paul pleaded for an outward manifestation, that is an outward display of that unity that comes from an inward spirit. But Paul just didn't encourage Christians to speak the same thing and have outward unity. He also urged them to be joined together in a unity of hearts and minds. Now, when he says speak the same thing and have the same mind... This doesn't mean that everybody has to be clones of one another. Everybody doesn't have to speak and think the same thing. That's not what he's saying. It means believers should not be fighting with each other, bickering over petty things, hating each other. Paul said in Galatians 5, 13 through 15, he says, For you have been called to live in freedom, but, notice, not freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. But freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command love your neighbor as yourself. He said, But if instead of showing love among yourselves, you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. The word divisions, the word for divisions here is schisma, where we get our word schism. It means there should be no one, it means there should be no open break, no fracturing of the church, which occurs by fighting, gossip, criticism, hatred, or bitterness. And these things are in the church right now. And I don't, I'm not saying this church in particular, all churches. They're in all churches. These things can't be in your life or my life if Jesus is Lord of your life. Very simple. Paul said, let there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Because they, you, we are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he says. We are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One in fellowship with the Lord. So they should be in one fellowship with one another. If we have fellowship with the Lord, that fellowship should carry over into all our other relationships. Now, what is this thing that's called fellowship? Because I think many see it in a different way. You know, we say, hey, well, let's get together and have some fellowship. And that might be going out doing something or just having coffee or, 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 or you know, watching a movie or something. But let me define what fellowship is, according to the the Greek word koinonia. The word koinonia means that which is shared in common. And in the New Testament, the word was used to mean the believer's common participation in the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's where our fellowship is to be the father and the son have enjoyed communion with each other ever since the before the world was created and when the son entered into time his fellowship with the father also entered into time and during the days of jesus's ministry he was introducing the father to the disciples and bringing them into this fellowship with him then once the disciples were regenerated that is once the disciples were saved They entered into eternal life. They actually entered into fellowship with the Father and the Son. So you see, this unique fellowship between the Father and the Son started in eternity. Was manifested in time through the incarnation of the Son. And it was introduced to the apostles. And then through the apostles, it was extended to each and every believer to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Their unity in Jesus Christ was the basis for Paul's request for the unity among believers. What is the same mind? It's the mind of Christ. Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren... By those of Chloe's household that there are contentions among you. Notice, now, Paul avoided dealing in rumors or secrecy. He openly named his sources. He says, hey, Chloe's told me. Those in Chloe's household have said this this about you. Now, we don't know much about Chloe and her household except what this verse is saying, what it's implying. Chloe lived in Corinth or Ephesus, and the Corinthians respected her word. The word for contentions here speaks of strife, quarreling, schisms, and backbiting in the church at Corinth. And like I said, Paul got his information firsthand. He named his source. He got his information from Chloe. He wasn't writing based on rumors or gossip or the church grapevine. You see, if you're going to make an accusation, you better put your name on it. Like Jesus did. Pastor Chuck told us one time, he says, if somebody registers a complaint about you, but doesn't identify themselves, he says, I wouldn't pay any attention to it. Ignore it. Look at verse 12. Now, I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul. Or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Divisions were being caused by believers following different leaders of the church. They started cliques. One group said, Hey, I like Paul. Well, hey, I like Apollos. Oh, I really like Cephas or Peter. Paul, Apollos, and Peter, they're not the ones who started or caused the divisions in the church. They labored together in the faith for Jesus Christ. They kept the unity of the Spirit, and they all exalted Jesus Christ. It was the members of the church in Corinth who were guilty of making the divisions. Oh, we like so-and-so because he's on TV. Oh, we like so-and-so because he's so funny. Oh, we like this person because, you know, he, he just speaks about prophecy all the time. They weren't considering the fact that they were God's instruments. Paul's going to show them that focusing on Jesus is the answer to the division and breakups in the church. The divisive spirit won't go away until people are willing to come to Jesus. But there was also a fourth group. The other group said, we're of Christ. Now that sounds great. They weren't really putting Jesus first. They were just the hyper-spiritual group. This was... Th- this this was probably the worst group of all, making a cult of Christ. You see, they had their little clique in the church, and they excluded other believers because they were the super spirituals. They knew it all. They had all the experiences. They knew the word backwards and forward. These kinds of problems in the church are probably the ones that do the most damage. Because, you see, the church has been destroyed from the inside. Now, the problems on the outside today, uh, the, you know, they're, we know who, we know where they stand. So the problems aren't on the outside. We know that they hate the church. We know that they don't like Christianity and the word of God. They make themselves known. Now, many churches have been destroyed by liberal preachers. Because if the person in the pulpit, the man in the pulpit is, is, is sound in the faith, you're going to find troublemakers in the pew. Listen to what Paul said. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. Notice, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering and bearing one another in love. Those are the four graces of unity. The four graces of unity. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering and bearing with one another. And then he goes on to say, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word endeavoring means to spare no effort to do whatever you have to do to keep the peace in the body of Christ. Now, not, not, at, the, not at the cost of compromising the word, but anything else. It means not arguing with others. It's not, it means not quarreling and dividing. It means to it's, it's spare no effort. I do what I need to do to keep the unity of peace in the body of Christ. Verse 13 is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the first question Paul asked was, is Christ divided? Isn't Jesus the head of the body that everybody belongs to? Yes. He's saying then how can the head be separated from the body? And Paul's main point is that believers are one in Christ and they should never do anything that upsets or destroys the unity. And no leader, no matter how gifted and how effective, should have the loyalty that belongs only to Jesus. And a lot of leaders like the people to, to depend upon them. And I've seen them over the years. You know, it's well. You, know, you need to come and see me and you need to call me and talk to me. And, and, and they kind of have their own little you know, collection of sheep. And they're having having that loyalty that belongs only to Jesus Christ. We are to point people to Jesus. We are to help them become dependent upon Jesus and not me. Or anybody else. Paul didn't want any group named after him. He said he'd never been crucified for anyone. No one was ever baptized in his name. His authority was given to him. It wasn't his own authority. And his purpose was to bring people to Jesus, not to himself. A Christian church that's divided is a contradiction. It's a contradiction. Paul said, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him, the Lord. And when you quarrel and fight, you're not reflecting the Lord in front of the world. We weaken his church. And worst of all, you grieve and put to shame the one who purchased you. The one who died for you. The one who died to make you one in him. The father is one. The son is one. The spirit is one. The church is one. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. The psalmist said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in together in unity. And the word dwell means to remain in. A continual unity. And unity is important because, number one, it makes the church a positive example to the world and it helps draw others to Jesus. Secondly, it helps us work together as the body of believers as God meant us to and giving us a sample of heaven. And third, unity is important because it renews and refreshes ministry because there's, a, there's less tension to weaken our strength. Verses 14 through 17. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul saying here that, hey, he says, I didn't baptize very many people. He said, because I didn't want people thinking that, that he was baptizing in his own name. You see, Paul is focusing on Jesus. We're called, we're commanded, and we're commissioned to confront the world's unbelief. We're called to take the gospel to them. And there are a lot of people today who think that, the, that water baptism saves them. And again, if that was true, I doubt that Paul would say, hey, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody. God, and he says, God didn't call me to baptize. That tells you right there. You know What saves us is the word of God, that trusting faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is just an outward display of an inward change. It's an outward display of what's happened in my heart. Paul attached so little importance to baptism that he couldn't really remember whether he had baptized anyone else or not. And it's important for us to see today that there are a lot of people who are dividing and separating over many non-essential issues, not essentials of the faith. A lot of people argue over baptism, which doesn't save. They argue over the rapture, which doesn't save. They argue over the gifts of the Spirit, which doesn't save. Doesn't save. Those are things that you know that, that aren't essentials of the faith. And we have to learn to to, agree, uh, disagree, uh, to disagree agreeably. The church in Corinth was split by that kind of party spirit. Apollos and Paul and Peter, they brought a message to Corinth that had a unifying quality and power. The gospel that they preached emphasized union and not division. Bringing people together, not tearing them apart. But, because these people were young Christians, baby Christians, if you will, they started looking to individuals instead of God's word. Now, we want to help those young Christians. We want to help those, those, those baby believers. We want to help them, though, come to a, a faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and to have them become dependent upon Christ. Now Paul is drawing their attention away from their groups and party spirit and pointing them to Jesus. Verse 18. Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When man depends on his own wisdom, he tries to put down God's wisdom because, you see, it looks foolish to him. How can this be? Why did he do that if this was true? You know, questioning the things of God. And he asks the questions and he put, tries to put down the wisdom of God because it clashes with his own thinking. Why would God take a man, crucify him, resurrect him to provide for forgiveness for man's sin and then entrance to heaven? No, the idea is too simple. It's foolish to them. And it's humbling. It's humbling for the natural man to, ex- to accept. You know, that one man could die on a cross and that, and that would decide the destiny of every person, you know, whoever lived. It seems foolish to them. You know, where's man's part? It's like the, the Philippian jailer. He says, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? This whole thing about the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. The word foolish is from the Greek word moros, where we get the word moronic. It's a bunch of nonsense to unbelievers who trust in their own wisdom to those who are perishing. And that phrase is a clear description of those who reject Jesus Christ who are in the process of being destroyed in eternal judgment. And Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, the natural man, that is the man who is not saved, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And how many times when you've, you've witnessed with somebody, it's like, and I remember when I first got, I, I did not understand what they were saying. I, I, it, it, was, it was so It was weird to me. To me, they were like from another world, and basically they were, the spiritual world. I was from the natural world. Because the natural man without the Spirit of God does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Nor can he know him. I'm sorry, nor can he know them, that is those spiritual things, because you see, they are spiritually discerned. You can only learn them through the Spirit of God. And that's why it's so important to pray for that breakthrough for those that don't know God. You need to pray for that moment, that breakthrough, where they can see enough light to make a decision for Christ, where those scales can be removed from their eyes so that they can see. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Here, Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, to emphasize a point that Jesus often made. And that is God's way of thinking isn't like the world's way. Again, the world's way of thinking, it's natural. It's human wisdom. And God offers eternal life that the world can never give. We can spend our whole life becoming wise and yet never learn how to have a personal relationship with God. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.6, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We come to the crucified and risen Christ to receive eternal life and the joy of a personal relationship with the Savior. Verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So Paul says, where, where, does, the, where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? Paul says, God has made them all look foolish and has shown their wisdom is useless nonsense. The world's great thinkers and philosophers and sociologists and psychologists and economists, scientists, politicians, progressive thinkers, the so-called woke people. Where have they taken us? you seen the news lately. That's where they've taken us. Man is on the verge this morning of wiping each other out. Man has never been so confused. They don't know what's a male or female anymore. They don't even know what to call each other anymore based on those things. He, she, it, them, what? God made it so simple. He created the male and female. We've never been to a more evil society, more immoral, troubled, and corrupt. That's the wisdom of man. Man's wisdom today has failed him just like ancient wisdom failed. Because she, way back then it was the same problem as today. Man. The heart. Man's wisdom can't see the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. Which is always Sin. They can't see that wrong, selfishness, hatred, misery, pain, and destruction is caused by sin. And it's easy to see that man doesn't get along with man, but he he can't see that the real cause is that he can't get along with God. Man's wisdom can't see because it won't see. It doesn't want to see. And as long as man's wisdom looks at God's wisdom as foolishness, man's wisdom will be foolish. In other words, man's wisdom itself is a basic part of the problem. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Peace, joy hope, unity, fellowship, and every other goal of man is out of his reach as long as as he follows his own way in trying to reach them. The man or woman who sees the cross as, as foolishness is doomed to his or her own foolishness. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. One of the problems with man's religion is that it starts with finite man trying to reach the infinite God who can't be understood by the mind of man. Job 9.10, it says, He, God, does great things to marvel as to understand. Isaiah 55, God says, My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Think about it. You want a God you can figure out? You want a God who you, can, who, who you who can guess what he's doing? Then he wouldn't be God. I want him to be smarter than me. A lot smarter than me. Who by searching can understand God to perfection. The world by its wisdom did not know God. God is revealed Finite man can never reach and touch the infinite God. That's impossible. But the infinite God can easily touch man. And the difference between Christianity and every other religion is that the religions of the world, they have finite man reaching out for God. Religion can only point you to God. They, They can't They can't do anything. But in Christianity, they have the infinite God reaching down to finite man and touching man. So the world by wisdom did not know God. Paul said in verse 21 here, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Not the preaching of foolishness, but by the foolishness of the message preached, man should come to faith in God. So God has chosen that His plan of salvation should be revealed to man by the foolishness of preaching. And by the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, God's plan of redemption. That's how God plants faith. Verse 22 through 24. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So many Jews consider the good news of Jesus Christ to be foolish. Why? Because they thought the Messiah was going to be a conqueror, a conquering king who would come along with, with many signs and miracles and wonders and do all kinds of great things. Jesus hadn't, and Jesus hadn't restored David's throne yet. Nobody was sitting on the throne like they expected And not only that, he was killed like a common criminal. How could a common criminal, you know, be a savior? So the Greeks considered the good news foolish to them. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They didn't see the powerful uh, character of their mythological gods in Jesus. You know, all those mythological gods, oh, they were able to do all kinds of great and mighty things. But of course, that's because they were mythological. You can make up a, a mythological god to do anything you want. So they didn't see any of these mythological characteristics in their gods in Jesus. And they thought no upright person would ever be crucified. So to them, Christ's death was a defeat, not a victory. The good news of Jesus still sounds foolish to a lot of people today. Because this world worships power, intellect, influence, wealth. Jesus became a humble, poor servant. And he offers his kingdom to those who have faith, not to those who do all kinds of good deeds trying to earn salvation. This looks foolish to the world, but Christ is the mighty power of God. And he's the only way we can be saved. Knowing Christ personally is the greatest wisdom that anyone could ever know. Verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of Jesus' death for sins, it sounds so foolish to those who don't believe. Now, de- death seems to be the end of the road for everybody. It seems to be the ultimate weakness. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And Jesus does his best work in the graveyard. He, re- he resurrected, showing his power even over death. And he'll save us from eternal death and he'll give us eternal life if, and there it is, if we trust him as Savior and Lord. It's so simple. So simple and that's why many people will not accept it. They try other ways to obtain eternal life. Being good, being wise, you know, trying to earn their way into the kingdom. But whatever they try to do is useless. The foolish people who simply accept Christ's offer are actually the wisest of all. The the foolish people who simply accept Christ's offer are actually the wisest of all because they alone will live eternally with God. Verses 26-28. through For you see, your calling, brethren... He's not looking for millionaires. He's not looking for powerful politicians or famous athletes or movie stars to save and do his work. His salvation is open to all, but only on the same basis of faith. All must enter the kingdom of God on God's terms. The very things that put them ahead in the world that is the wealthy, the rich, the, all, all the, the ones of the world. The very things that put them ahead in the world may actually drag them down with God. It's kind of like Moses who was raised up in the universities of Egypt. He, he was very educated and, and well-learned and, and knew all there was to know about the world. And then when he became God's deliverer, what did God do with him? He spent, sent him to the desert for 40 years to, for the lack of a better word, unlearn everything he learned in the world because that was not going to help him in the kingdom of God. God had a whole set of laws that were quite different from the ways of the world and a wisdom much different than the ways that were for him to be God's deliverer of his people. So again, those things of the world may drag you down with God. It's the feeling of inadequacy that makes people aware that they have a need. And that often draws them to the gospel. God's wisdom is almost a contradiction. Because in human thinking, in human thinking strength is strength, weak is weak, and intelligence is intelligence. But in God's kingdom, some of the things that seem strongest are the weakest. Some of the things that seem weakest are the strongest. And some of the things that seem wisest are the most foolish. And what seems to be a contradiction isn't an accident. It's God's design. What did Jesus say to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. A simple, uneducated, untalented, and incompetent believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and who has faithfully and humbly followed Jesus Christ is a lot wiser than brilliant PhDs who make fun of the gospel. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 99 to 100. He says, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation, and I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I'm wiser than all my teachers, the psalmist said, because of God's word and my meditation upon your testimonies. And I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts, which again is just another word for his word. You see, the simple believer knows forgiveness, knows love, grace, life, and hope. God's word and God himself. He can see eternity. The unbelieving PhD, on the other hand, knows nothing more than his books and what he's learned and his own mind and his own experience. He sees only this life. He can only be considered foolish. But the simplicity of the gospel and the humility of faithful believers That's not understood by the world. It seems to be total foolishness to them. But that's the way the Lord planned it. And it's interesting to note that the word despised in verse 28, it means to be considered as nothing. The phrase, the things which are not, in verse 28, means the most disgraceful expression in the Greek language. The word being was was everything to the Greeks. And to be called a nothing was the worst of insults. The world measures greatness by many standards. Worldly standards like intelligence, wealth, title, prestige, position. Things that God has said, nothing to him. Things that he's put at the bottom of the list. God reveals the greatness of his power by taking the world's nobodies and making them his somebodies. He takes the ordinary and does the extraordinary with them. Because it's him who's doing it. You see God's not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. It's saying, God, here I am, I, 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 don't, I, I can't I don't I, I'm not good at anything. but if you want to use me, I'll be used. and that's what God can do when he can do great things because He will give the ability. The Bible tells us that there was no greater man than John the Baptist, except for Jesus. Think about it. John wasn't a cool dresser. He wore camel hair. He didn't eat from the finest restaurants. He ate bugs, locusts, and wild honey. He didn't own anything. He didn't have any money. He looked like a wild man, lived like a wild man. John the Baptist didn't fit the world's standards, but he fit God's. And what he was and what he became was all because of God's power. And he said there was none greater than John the Baptist. Imagine. Let's close with verses 29 through 31. And here's why he didn't pick the noble, the wise, the smart, and the popular, and the famous, and all that. He said, because no flesh should glory in his presence. That way, when they see those that, that are nobodies, and, and don't you know, have any of these worldly qualities, he says, well, that has to be God, because that guy don't know he doesn't know anything. It has to be God, he says. So in his presence, he says that no one should glory, But of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became for us. He became wisdom of God for us. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written. He who glories. Let him glory in the Lord. So why does God do it the way he does? So that we do not have a thing to glory about. He's, He's done it all. He's everything that we need. He's become wisdom for us. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. He's our sufficiency. He's our all in all. We are complete in him. He is the I am that I am. I am the becoming one. I will become whatever you need me to be. Whatever you need today, you'll find it in Jesus Christ. What do you need? Our glory should be in the Lord. We should glory only in Jesus Christ. And why do you, who, who do you glory in? What are you boasting of today? Are you boasting in your intelligence? Your degrees, your accomplishments, your wealth, your power? Are you boasting today in your position, your character? Then you have nothing to boast about. But we can boast about Jesus. Why? Because he's everything that we need. Father, we thank you so much for again these powerful words, encouraging words, Lord. Let us not be discouraged because we are, you know, uh, we're not mighty, you know, because we're we're weak things, base things, things that are despised, and yet things that God has chosen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for choosing us, God. It shows how much you love us and how much you want to use us, God. That every single person to you is important and is usable. All we have to do is say, here I am, Lord, use me. So may we gain that confidence in Christ. The confidence knowing that he wants to use me and he chose me. Even though he knows all about me, my past. Knows that I don't have any talents that I can give to him. Other than myself. And that's all he wants. Just for us to step forward and say, here I am, Lord. Use me, send me. So Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your choice today. We thank you for choosing us, Lord, from the foundation of the world. Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today. We thank you for your many blessings and for watching over us, taking care of us, and again, for your generosity, Lord. And Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.